Do you know what your love language is? Maybe, maybe you've heard that phrase. 30 years ago, Gary Chapman published his book, The Five Love Languages, and it has become a cultural sensation. The New York Times, actually, of all publications, did a whole, a whole like piece on Gary Chapman and the five languages of love and talked about all the ways in which it, it's now become like something that whether or not you've ever heard of Gary Chapman in all walks of life, you, you've run across this sort of terminal, terminology. Uh, Chapman identified these five languages, words of affirmation is one of them, quality time is another, acts of service is the third, gifts, my favorite, is the fourth, and, and physical touch, five different languages of love. And, and according to Chapman, everybody has one. Everybody has their preferred language. And, and, and therefore, successful communication of love between one person and another depends upon you learning how to use their language rather than yours. Well, yeah, I could say a lot about the five love languages, but let me just, I'm not. I'm just going to say, I think there's probably some truth to what, what Chapman is talking about, especially if the goal is to make someone feel loved. If your goal is to make someone feel loved, it'd be, it'd be good to figure out, well, what, what makes them feel that way? And then to, to do those things. But, but immediately, as you start kind of pressing on this idea, like you run into some problems, right? Feelings can be manipulated. Communication can be employed deceptively. And when it comes to love, it's more than just feeling loved. We, we, we know that we actually are loved, and, and therefore intentions matter. Not just the language that's used, but the intentions behind that language. Oh, but, but even good intentions aren't enough, are they? Expressions of love, well and genuinely intended, can be misunderstood or actually missed altogether, you know, just, just goes right over your head. This is what so often happens with these love languages, right? You're trying to tell your beloved that you love them, but you're using your language, not their language, and it is going right over their head. They're not, they're not, they're not getting it at all. I do a lot of membership interviews and, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the sad things that I often hear in a membership interview, and I'm sure you've run across this just even in pop culture, you've, you've heard interviews of people who talk about what an impact their, their father had on them. And yet, as adults, they mourn the fact that they never heard their dad say, I love you. Oh, they, they, they know he loves them. They're pretty sure anyway. He did lots of stuff, but they never heard him say it. I think about that poignant scene in the movie The Quiet Place 
where, where the dad has a deaf daughter and he's constantly showing her that he loves her by working on these hearing aids for her. And, and yet at one point in the movie, the son who can hear says to said, yeah, but you never say it. It turns out words may not be sufficient, but they are necessary if we're to know that we are loved. The talk is cheap, and we're right back where we started. How do you know someone loves you? Is it about love languages? Is it about whether we feel we're loved? It it all seems so impossibly subjective. How can you really know? I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, this is found on page 1019. 1019. 1 Corinthians 14. Let me just read the first verse. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. Well, that's an interesting first sentence. We've come to the conclusion, with chapter 14, we've come to the conclusion of a long argument. It actually started way back in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, where, where Paul called into question the spirituality of the Corinthian Christians based on their behavior towards each other. They were treating each other horribly. And and ever since then, he has been kind of demolishing their attempt to claim to be spiritual, to kind of define their spirituality and all these other things like aligning with their favorite preacher or their superior theological knowledge or most recently, their spiritual gifts. He's been building to what we saw two weeks ago when we were in 1 Corinthians 13. The kind of the climax of his argument about what does it mean to be a truly spiritual person is that the spiritual person is characterized by love. This is what we saw in chapter 13. The spiritual person, the truly spiritual person is characterized by love and not just any kind of love, the love that only the Holy Spirit of God can produce in us. It's it's that love that will unite a church. And this church in Corinth was deeply divided over all of these other things. It's like, no, 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 it's it's love that will unite you. Now we get to chapter 14, and he's ready to, to take that truth. The spiritual person is characterized by the love that the Holy Spirit produces. He's going to apply that truth specifically to the use of spiritual gifts. The spiritual person, he's just arguing chapter 13, loves. But here's how you know. Here's how you really know that they are loving. Spiritual people would rather build others up than themselves. I think that's the main point of this chapter, chapter 14. And it's kind of the conclusion where he's landed this argument that's been going since chapter three. Really spiritual people, truly spiritual people, they're not people with better knowledge or flashy gifts. No, spiritual people 
are people who would rather build others up than themselves. And it all flows from the nature of love. Paul's going to make an argument in chapter 14. It's going to have three movements. We're going to look at it in three parts. But as we do, here's what I want you to consider about yourself this morning. As you consider your own life, as you consider your words, your speech, what does your life say about who you really love? What does your life say? about who you really love. All right, here's here's how the argument unfolds. Spiritual people would rather build others up than themselves because, first, love wants to edify. That's what love wants to do. You know, winners want to win, haters going to hate. Love wants to edify. Look at verse 1 again. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. For the person who speaks in another tongue is not speaking to people, but to God, since no one understands him. He speaks mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. The person who speaks in another tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. I wish all of you spoke in other tongues, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may be built up. All right, Paul starts here, having having given them this rebuke about their lack of love in chapter 13, he starts by giving them two commands. They should first pursue love. How should they pursue love? They should pursue love like my dog used to chase squirrels like his very life depended on it. And it didn't matter that I was on the other end of the leash. I was just going to have to follow, right? They, they, they should pursue love like the guy in second place in the race, right, is pursuing the guy in first place because he wants to win so bad. That's how you should pursue love, all-out pursuit. But, but then second, they should desire spiritual gifts. That's also a command. And it's actually the same phrase that he ended in chapter 12. Look back at chapter 12, verse 31. But desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. Now, you'll remember if you were here, I argued in chapter 12, that was kind of sarcastic on Paul's part. But but desire the greater gifts. Oh, but I'm going to show you a better way. Well, he uses the exact same phrase again, but this time he's no longer being sarcastic because, because, see, he's corrected the way they should think in chapter 13, he's, he's corrected their thinking because he's pointed them to love. He wants love to guide their desire for greater gifts. And in particular, he wants them to desire one gift, the gift of prophecy. You see that there at the end of verse 1, especially that you may prophesy. And, and he's going to contrast this in verse 2 with speaking in tongues. All right, let me pause and define some terms. What's prophecy? Well, it may or may not involve, like, telling the future. Some biblical prophecy tells the future. Some biblical prophecy does not. That's not really finally what prophecy is all about. Fundamentally, in the Bible, prophecy 
is a supernaturally revealed authoritative message from God. It's a message from God. Supernaturally revealed. It comes with all the authority of God himself speaking. Now, perhaps you've heard prophecy equated with preaching so that that what I'm doing is prophesying right now. Actually, the the Puritans love to use the term that way. They they liked that idea. This is a place where I kind of disagree with the Puritans, but they they really like that idea, uh, that, that prophecy and preaching were the same thing. Others have said, that actually, uh, Paul doesn't mean prophecy like Old Testament prophets here. No, he just means prophecy like, you know, a spontaneous thought or message that comes to mind, probably prompted by the Spirit for somebody's imper- encouragement. But, but definitely, you shouldn't like write it down and add it to your Bible. And, and that's what Paul means by prophecy here. Um, both of those ideas are attractive. And I don't think either of them are right. Uh, so for those of you who are kind of aware of this, I, this is a place where I really disagree with uh, Wayne Grudem. I, I think Peter is really clear. He says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, you can look this up later, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, no prophecy ever came by the will of man. All right. I can assure you that the sermon that you're hearing right now came by the will of man. So I think sermons are ruled out. I think preaching is ruled out. Um, but, But then he goes on. So no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I think that rules out non authoritative, spontaneous promptings from the Spirit no matter how encouraging they might be. So I have the deepest respect for Dr. Grudem, but I don't think that's the right way to read 1 Corinthians 14. I think when Paul talks about prophesying and prophecy, he means exactly what we all sort of intuitively think he means by it, a supernaturally revealed message from God that has the authority of God himself speaking. All right, so that's prophecy. What's speaking in tongues? That's a little easier. Speaking in tongues in scripture is the supernatural ability to speak a real language that you don't know. A real language that you've never learned, that you weren't taught. But the spirit himself simply gives you the ability uh, to to speak that language. And we see it in the New Testament. We see it in Acts chapter 2 when everyone heard the gospel in their own language. There are all these people gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost for the the festival. And all of a sudden, the 12 uh, apostles are now standing up and they're preaching the gospel. And a bunch of them are preaching it in languages that they don't know, such that, that everybody's able to hear it in their own kind of native language. Some people thought they were drunk, but Peter declared it was the outpouring of the Spirit in fulfillment of Joel 2. So what does that mean for speaking in tongues? Well, at least in that context and in our chapter, chapter 14, I think in one sense, you can almost think of speaking in tongues as like a subset of prophecy because it is a supernaturally 
empowered speech direct from the Holy Spirit, you are delivering a message from God. It's just, it's in a language you don't know. All right, so much for definitions. Paul's point in these first five verses is that the spiritually mature person is motivated by love, and so his or her greatest desire is to prophesy, not speak in tongues. Now, that might have caught the Corinthians by surprise because they thought speaking in tongues was the best. They thought that was the greatest thing. I mean, how cool, right? To all of a sudden start talking in a language you don't know, and it's the very voice of God coming from you. Whew, that's cool. He says, no, 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 no. That's not what you should want most. And then, and then he tells us why. He says, look, speaking in tongues, as I said, which they considered the greatest gift, speaking in tongues just builds yourself up. It's kind of the ultimate, hey, look at me, gift, right? It builds yourself up. That's what he says there in verse four, because like, you're, just, you're just having a private conversation with God that no one else can understand, but everybody else can see you're having. That's pretty cool. That doesn't help anybody. On the other hand, he says, prophecy builds up the church. That's what he says there in verse four. The one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, he has already kind of made this point in chapter eight with respect to theological knowledge. Back in chapter eight, verse one, he said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Same word, builds up, edifies. Now he's making that point with respect to spiritual gifts. Love wants to build up the beloved. He says there in verse three, he wants to strengthen and encourage and console the beloved. I taught all of my kids how to ride a bike. And if any of you have had that privilege of teaching a kid how to ride a bike, you know it's a fraught experience, right? You put them on the bike, you take off the training wheels, off they go, they're wobbling, and they fall. And what, is, what do you say at that point when they fall? Do you say, no, 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 that's all wrong? That's not the way you do it? No, of course not. Of course you don't say that. What do you say? You say, that was great. That was great. Let's do it again. You're so good at this. And even though they're terrible at it, you put them back on the bike and you try again, right? Yeah, because this is what love does. Love encourages. Love strengthens. It consoles. I mean, my, my, Michael's sitting right here, and I think I recall when, uh, when I taught him to ride a bike, uh, he, he managed to run headlong into a fence. There was some consolation that needed to happen in that moment. No, you're okay. You're okay. We can do this again. This is what love does. Well, Paul's saying, look, if love is the greatest, and it is, right? Chapter 13, verse 31, now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So if love is the greatest, and if love wants to build up, and it does, chapter 8, verse 1, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Then love will want the gifts that build others up. That's what it will want more than anything else. And I should say, whatever gift you have, 
Love will compel you to use that gift, whatever that gift is, in such a way that it builds others up. This is just the nature of love. This is, this is what love does. It wants the good of the beloved. So Paul says you should want the gift that builds others up, and that gift is prophecy. And that then raises the, the first of two difficult questions that I've got to deal with in this chapter. Are prophecy, and as I've defined it, and for that matter, tongues, as I've defined it, operating in the church today? And does obeying this passage mean that we should all now start praying fervently for the gift to prophesy? All right. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, you can write that down, Ephesians 2, 22, Paul says that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. I believe there that when he says the apostles and the prophets, obviously the apostles, he's referring to himself and the other disciples that became apostles. I believe there that when he uses the term prophets, He's not thinking about the Old Testament prophets. He's thinking about the New Testament prophets. The church is being built on the message that the apostles and the prophets were bringing with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Now, let's just be really clear. The church is still being built. Jesus hasn't come back yet. The universal church has not yet gathered. We, we, that, that beautiful image of the church completed in Revelation 21. Yeah, we're not there yet. So the church is still being built. And as we're going to see as we get further into chapter 14, we should be using our gifts to build up the church. And actually, that's not a new point. It, he, he introduced this idea all the way back in chapter 3, where he invited us to build on the foundation that he had already laid. But I, I don't have to know as much about building as Rick Caffel does to know that you only lay a foundation once. There's just one foundation. And that foundation gets laid once. And then, man, the building can go, the, the building work on top of that foundation can go on for quite some time. I think the apostles and the New Testament prophets, some of whom were in the church there in Corinth, were laying that foundation. And Paul and the rest of the New Testament will then talk about that foundation having been laid. It's been done. It's happened. Now, does that mean that there's nothing for us to do? Well, no. Uh, the, the Spirit, of course, continues to lead us to speak words to one another for encouragement, for edification. And sometimes that happens quite spontaneously. Sometimes the Spirit comes along and just like brings to mind a verse or, or, or a word of encouragement or even maybe rebuke or admonishment for the good of another brother or sister. And that is definitely the work of the Holy Spirit. But I don't think we would call that, whatever that is, foundational. That's not foundation work. And, and, I, and I think that's what Paul's talking about here. What about tongues? 
Can, can people speak in tongues today? Can they, can, can they speak in, in languages that they do not know? Yes. And I, and I say that because there are, there are lots of credible stories out there of that. And, and I think I've even witnessed it. But I don't think that speaking in tongues has come in the form of the revelation that, that Paul is talking about here that, that's happening in Corinth, a speaking in tongues that's kind of a subset of prophecy, the, the, the way the, the apostles did in Acts chapter 2. So what, what, does, what does that mean? Well, I want to be really clear. I'm speaking here for myself, not for the elders. I don't know that our church has actually taken a formal position on this. But where that leaves me is in this really kind of strange in-between place. Uh, for those of you that care, I'm not a formal cessationist. For those of you that are concerned about this, I'm not a formal cessationist. I don't like saying God can't or God doesn't. I just think those are, that, that, that word can't is not a good word ever to attach to God. He can do what he wants, whenever he wants. So I'm not a formal cessationist. But I probably am a functional cessationist. I'm not expecting somebody to stand up with a prophecy from God this morning. I'm not expecting somebody to stand up speaking in tongues with an interpretation that also is evidently a prophecy from God. Because I think that foundation has been laid. I will say, I think one of the really interesting places uh, where you do see uh, activity that looks more like what you see in Corinth is in, in pioneer mission fields where there are no scriptures, where there is no church, and, and where God continues to act in really extraordinary ways to make clear the truth of the gospel. But I don't think that's our context. So why are we bothering spending time on 1 Corinthians 14? Well, I think this passage actually has a lot to say to us. Whatever gifts the Spirit has given you, whatever the gift is, what is your goal with that gift? What is your goal? If love is what characterizes you, if you are a, a spiritual Christian, then edification of others will be your goal. And that means you're going to take whatever gift or gifts you have, and you're going to tailor them. You're going to adjust them so that you can use them not for your benefit, not for your satisfaction, not for your personal enjoyment, but you're going to use them for the good of others. You're going to use those gifts for our good. Now, I could keep going on and on on this point, but this was largely the point of the sermon I preached on 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, three weeks ago. So if you want to explore that further, let me just point you back to the sermon on 1 Corinthians 12 to help you think about this more. But, but basically, love is going to motivate you to use whatever gift you have to build others up, to encourage them, to strengthen them, to console them here in the church. 
all right, spiritual people would rather build others up than themselves because spiritual people are characterized by love and love wants to edify. But since love wants to edify, second, it'd rather use words. It'd rather use words. Look at verse six. So now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in other tongues, how will I benefit you? Unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. Even lifeless instruments that produce sounds, whether flute or harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? In fact, if the bugle makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world, and none is without meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So also you, since you're zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. Therefore, the person who speaks in another tongue should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the Spirit, and I will also sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit, how will the outsider say amen at your giving of thanks, since he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in other tongues more than all of you, Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in another tongue. Brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. It is written in the law, I will speak to this people by people of other tongues and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Speaking in other tongues, then, is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is not for, believe, for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in other tongues and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all are prophesying, and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming, God is really among you. All right, so whatever gift you have, the spiritual person chasing hard after love will be looking for a way to use words, intelligible words, to build others up. It's a long argument, but I'm going to kind of summarize it quickly. Paul points out that tongues without interpretation is like an instrument that's being played badly. Thankfully, we do not suffer from that here. We have wonderful musicians here. Uh, but, but you can imagine if somebody got up here to try to lead us in, in a song that we were about to sing, and they totally didn't know how to play the instrument, or they totally messed up the introduction, we wouldn't know what to do because we wouldn't have recognized the tune. It's the same with us. Unless we use intelligible words, people won't know what we mean. 
Paul uses a different analogy down in, in verse uh, 11. He says, we'll be like foreigners. Yeah, you're speaking a language, but what good is it if you don't know the language? Words and words alone convey definite meaning. Words and words alone convey definite meaning. Now, now you're going to say, oh, but Michael, people do things for me and it speaks to me. Yeah, I get it. But those, those actions, people could, might do something for you and, and that action might really touch you, right? Or, or you say to me, oh, but Michael, music is a language. Music can be written down. It can be read. It can be understood. Yeah, totally. Music can, can move me emotionally for sure. But, but only words can tell me precisely what the actor meant by his actions. I might have been touched by his actions, but unless he tells me what he meant by them, I don't actually know what he meant. I just know how I've been affected. Music is going to move me emotionally, but unless the composer actually tells me what he was intending to convey through that music, I don't know. I just have my impressions, my thoughts, and you might have been moved quite differently by the same piece of music. Only words can tell me what you mean. And so, and so Paul says there in verse 6, look, if people can't understand what I'm saying, how does that benefit them? Paul, of course, is not against speaking in tongues. He says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. He's just not content to stop there. And he doesn't think the Corinthians should be either. So in verses 13 to 17, he affirms, look, I'll pray in tongues, but I'm also going to pray with my understanding. I'll praise God in tongues, you know, by the Spirit, but I'm also going to praise God with my understanding. And, And by the way, if I'm speaking in tongues, I'm going to pray for interpretation so that it's not just this private conversation between me and God, but so verse, verse, uh, 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 what is it, verse 13, uh, so, that, so that others can be built up. He kind of sums it up in verse 19. In the church, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in another tongue. And, and, and you understand that, that if the number was four in 10,001, it doesn't change the calculus, right? He's making a comparison here. Like, even just a few words that you can understand is better than endless words that are meaningless to you. Now, here's the thing. I've I've kind of already said this in one sense. I want to say it again from a different angle. Paul's talking about tongues and prophecy. But but the principle holds. This is true of all the gifts. If, if I have the gift of service, and I do an act of service for you, but I don't attach words to it, if I don't explain the what and the why, then the benefit that you get from my act of service is merely physical. It is not spiritual. If I, if I don't use my words to connect my service to you to my love for Christ and and my hope that you will grow in Christ, 
then chances are you just walk away having been served. Nothing more. Ah, it's good to be served. But we want more than that. We want people to be built up in Christ. If I show someone I love them but don't tell them, how can they be sure? So brothers and sisters, especially members of this church, don't just be zealous for spiritual gifts. Be zealous for building up the church. Now that's going to take many forms. But, but, but whatever form it takes, whatever gift the Holy Spirit has decided to give you, don't forget the words. Don't, don't forget to bring words along with you in, in whatever gifting you've been given. And, and yes, I would say aspire to be someone who is gifted in such a way to teach God's word. Aspire to be someone who is gifted in such a way to be an encourager in the gospel. Uh, aspire to, 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 to be someone who is gifted in such a way as to be able to explain the Bible in a way that others are, are helped. Or, or, or to explain the gospel in such a way that non-Christians actually really understand it and can respond to it. If you're going to aspire to a gift, aspire to a gift that allows you to use words to build up the church. Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, even Jesus Christ. Now, this is true for our interactions with each other inside the church. We should be looking for those opportunities to point out evidences of grace in one another. We should not shrink back from those opportunities to help somebody grow in their understanding, or, or even though it's not enjoyable, to even bring a word of correction, a word of warning, because we love someone and we see them going in a direction that's going to lead to ruin. So this is definitely true inside the church. But it's also true outside the church. You see there, really beginning in verse 20, but it, gets, it becomes very clear beginning in verse 22. Paul points out that if the non-Christian shows up and hears us speaking in tongues, what he's hearing is judgment against him. Why is he hearing judgment against him? Because he can't understand what he's hearing. He quotes Isaiah 28, verse 11 to 12, which we heard Will read earlier. In the context there, Israel was not willing to listen to God's word from the prophets. And so God sent the Assyrians to speak a language that they did not understand in judgment against them. In that sense, Paul says, tongues are a, a sign, a, a revelation of judgment to the unbeliever. Because to hear, but not to understand, is to be under judgment. How sad, therefore, for someone to come to church and leave thinking nothing else than, those people are crazy. No, actually, those people have the words of life. You just didn't hear them. 
No, Paul doesn't want that. And what Paul really desires is that the unbeliever comes and hears prophesying, right? Why? Because as he says there, it, it, it's going to cut to the heart. It's going to bring conviction. It, it's going to call him to account. Prophecy is a, a sign, a, a revelation of salvation for believers because it brings us to faith in Jesus Christ. A confession, as he says there in verse 25, that God is really here among you. So, so if you're not a Christian, if you know yourself to be an unbeliever, or if you're not sure, let me, let me speak to you just for a moment. I am not a prophet. I am not prophesying at this moment. But I am a preacher. And what I preach is a message that was delivered by prophets, that was delivered by the apostles. What I'm proclaiming to you is a message from God to you. And it is good news. That's what the word gospel means. You hear Christians talk about the gospel. That's just a word that means the good news. Now, here's the thing. You already know part of the message. You already know part of the news. You know it if you pay attention to your own conscience because your conscience tells you when you're willing to listen to it that you're not who you ought to be. You know in the deepest parts of your heart that, that you should be better than you are, other than you are. You know you're not. And because of that, you feel guilty. Now, I know sometimes the guilt you feel is false guilt. It's guilt that other people have put on you wrongly, and you shouldn't feel that. But friends, some of the guilt that you feel is real. It, it's a feeling that you have because you actually are guilty. Guilty at least of not being who you at least think you ought to be. And you know that's true. You're actually more guilty than you know. But the good news of the gospel is that God loves guilty people like you and like me. And he loves you enough to speak to you in words that you can understand with a message that you can actually grasp of how you can be right with God. And that message is that it is through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who the Bible describes as the word of God, the message of God, actually made flesh. So that we not only heard him, we, we, we saw him, we, we, we saw kind of the whole package. Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life, a, a life that pleased God in every respect, the kind of life that never left his conscience feeling guilty. And then Jesus died on the cross not as an example, but as a substitute for you. Three days later, Jesus got up from the dead with the promise that if you will listen to him, if you'll actually believe him, what he says about himself and what he says about you, then you can be forgiven. You can have all the shame and guilt that you feel removed. You can be right with God. 
I, I would love to talk to you more about this message, this good news of the gospel. I'd love to talk to you about what it mean, would mean for you to believe it, to trust it, and to begin to follow Jesus. I'll be standing right down front afterwards, after we sing our last song and I give the benediction. So please come, come talk to me. I'd rather talk to you than really to anybody else in the room uh, this morning. But whether you come talk to me or not, please don't leave without considering this message from God that you have heard clearly today. Now, Christian, have you ever stopped to consider why we do what we do when we gather? Well, it's all because of what Paul says in this chapter. Paul here in chapter 14 is talking about their corporate gatherings, what we're doing right now, and he says it should be for the edification of the whole and that that edification comes through God's word. In, in this case, through prophecy, but, but we now have God's word not in the form of prophecies and scattered messages from the apostles that are being gathered. No, we, we have it in its completed form here in the scriptures. And so this is what our gathered worship revolves around. Every Sunday, we gather to hear edifying words that build us up. Not my words, not your words, but God's word. And, and so we preach God's word, and we read God's word, and, and we pray God's word. We, we hope that the, the prayers that are prayed are richly and deeply informed by God's word. And, and we sing God's word, the, 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 the primary criteria that we have for, for picking out songs and deciding which songs this congregation will sing is are these rich, scripture-filled, Christ-exalting lyrics. Those are the ones that we want to sing. And we want to see God's word as it's, as it's enacted for us in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we do this because we're convinced that it is not only God's word that converts, but it's God's word that edifies. It's God's word that builds us up. So are you coming each week, especially those of you who are members of this church, are you coming each week with, with a fervent expectation to hear words that edify, to hear words that build you up? Are you coming with the expectation of speaking words to one another that edify and build up or, or are you just coming for a little bit of religious entertainment? Are, are, are you just coming to have an experience that, that, will, that will pick you up a little bit and give you a lift as you go into the week? Are, are, are you looking just for a, a bit of spiritual motivation, maybe? Brothers and sisters, that's not what the public gathering of the church is for. The public gathering of the church is so that all of us, not just me, not just the leaders on the platform, but that all of us might be about the work of speaking edifying words to one another, that build one another up in Christ. And it is the evidence of God's word at work among us that convinces us and that convinces outsiders that God really is here. Not because of a fleeting experience that you had or didn't have, but because you heard true words that pointed you to Christ 
and built you up in him. Love wants to edify, so we'd rather use words. But third, and more briefly, since love wants to edify, it happily submits to order. It submits to order. Look at verse 26. What then, brothers and sisters? Whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. If anyone speaks in another tongue, there are to be only two, or at most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate from you? Or did it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and don't forbid speaking in other tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. All right, so Paul wants words used because words build up, but Paul doesn't just want like a cacophony of words. He does not want bedlam on Sunday morning when the Christians gather, but apparently that was kind of what was happening in Corinth. Like everybody was coming with something, right? I've got my tongue, I've got my hymn, I've got my prophecy, I've got my word of knowledge. Everybody had something and everybody was jockeying, you know, for their 15 minutes of, of prominence in, in the service, their 15 minutes of fame. And Paul's like, no, no. I mean, it's great that you've got something edifying to say. But since everything is to be done for building up, verse 26, then everything should be done decently and in order, verse 40. As Paul observes, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, verse 33. Uh, the, the, the peace he has in mind... It's the piece of a well-ordered classroom. Have, have you, any of you ever been in a classroom where the teacher lost control? Have any of you ever been a teacher where you lost control, right? It's, it's bedlam. It's, it's crazy. And all sorts of things are happening, but nobody is learning. Nobody is learning anything when, when order has been lost. Well, Paul says, look, it's, it's the same in church. So he gives some, some very specific instructions for our public assemblies. There should be an order of service, what we call a liturgy. That's what we've been walking through. Uh, and and when, it, when it's time for people to speak, like one at a time, please, one by one, and, and no more than two or three. Maybe he's got the children's workers in mind downstairs. I don't, I don't know. He doesn't want the, the service to go on too long. But for what, what, whatever is, is motivating him there, he's like one by one, 
no more than two or three. Oh, and since building up is the goal, if there's no interpreter, the person who came with a tongue, just sit down and be quiet. Have a private conversation between you and God in your heart. Because we're not here for you. We're here for building up everyone. And so if you can't build up everyone, be quiet. Essentially what he says. And of course, everything should be evaluated. You saw that there in verse 29? The others should evaluate. Here's my proof text for service review. When we get together after the services and we evaluate the morning and the evening service. Not really. Um, <laughs> but, but I do think this is an important point, right? So just like Old Testament prophecy, New Testament prophecy was to be evaluated. It was to be evaluated according to what had already been revealed by God in his word. And if it didn't accord with what had already been revealed, it was to be rejected. Now, I think this says something important to you this morning if you're not a Christian. If you're not a believer, you already know that Christianity is a supernatural religion. It claims to be supernatural. And maybe that's why you find yourself rejecting it. Uh, I'll defend all day long that Christianity is a supernatural religion. We, We actually believe Jesus got up from the dead. But Christianity is not an irrational religion. And just because something is supernatural does not mean that it is irrational. The same God that raised Jesus from the dead is the God who made our minds. And and he's the same God who then reveals himself to us using language. Language, by the way, is irreducibly rational. it's, it's, It's where rationality actually begins. We're not asking you when we ask you to come to Christ. We're not asking you to leave your mind at the door. No, we're asking you to use your mind. We're asking you to use your mind to understand what God is saying to you and then to submit to it. Christian, when you come on Sunday morning, are you coming coming, expecting to think? And that's what Paul is calling for here. When you come on Sunday morning, Paul is saying, come with, with a word that's going to edify others. Okay, that's going to take some thought. But also, come prepared to think about what's being said and evaluate what's being said. Again, I want to push back against the common notion that the point of this is so that you have an experience. That is not the point of our time together. I'm not against experiences. But what Paul wants us to be about when we come together on Sunday mornings is using our minds, using our minds to serve one another by building one another up, using our words, but also using our minds to evaluate what's being said. Does it accord with what's revealed in the scripture or does it not? Come on Sunday morning expecting to think. Now, Paul's concern for order also leads him to address the women in the church. And here's the other big controversial issue we're going to have to deal with briefly. 
Now, he's already given them instruction in chapter 11 for how women are to pray publicly in church and how they are to prophesy publicly in the church services. Like half of chapter 11 was given over to that. But now all of a sudden he's saying women are to remain silent. And if you're thinking this, you won't be the first to think, boy, it would be hard to do both of those at the same time. Hard to remain silent and prophesy with my head covered. Hard to remain silent and pray with my head covered. So what's going on here? Some think that Paul is quoting the Corinthians here, that this is their slogan, not his, and that he's actually correcting them, telling them later in verse 39 not to forbid speaking in tongues. And that's possible. But I think more likely, given the context of order and disorder that we've already seen, that, that what we're dealing with here is a situation in which some of the women in the church who in that day and age would have been less formally educated, not less smart, just less formally educated, found themselves disrupting the service because they were constantly asking questions. Things were being said that they didn't understand, maybe references to the Old Testament that they were unfamiliar with. And, and basically what Paul says is, look, that can wait. Save your questions for discussion at home over lunch afterwards. Don't, don't disrupt the service in order to have every question that comes to mind answered. I think it's very clear by, by dint of what he's already said, that he doesn't want women restricted from participation in the worship of the church. What he's after here in these verses is an orderly public worship in which everyone can hear. And as he says in verse 31, everyone may learn and be encouraged. He ends by confronting them with a series of rhetorical questions that, that really are meant to reinforce his own apostolic authority, right? The gospel didn't begin with them there in verse 36. In fact, they learned it from him. And so they should recognize the truth of what he said, verse 37, and they should ignore those who don't, verse 38. And so he kind of concludes the whole thing. Be eager, verse 39, be eager to prophesy and don't forbid tongues, but love should guide the use of both of those gifts, prophecy and tongues. And love should guide the use of all of the gifts. And so he concludes, everything should be done decently and in order. Because love wants to edify. And no one is edified in chaos. Brothers and sisters, how do you walk into church every Sunday? Do, do you walk in with the expectations that others are going to make you feel really loved today? They know your love language, and man, they're there to speak it to you. Do, do you walk in hoping to be able to use your gifts to be noticed and recognized, to be seen as, as somebody in the church, a leader in the church? Do you walk into church hoping to have a spiritual experience. Here's how you should walk into church. You should walk into church with the goal of building others up. Paul says there in verse 20, brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. He's calling all the way back to the beginning of chapter 3 where he said, I wanted to talk to you as grown-ups, 
but you're just babies. You're just childish. He's, he's, he's bringing the whole thing full circle now. He's saying, grow up. Be adults in your thinking. Spiritual maturity is marked by love, and love seeks the good of the beloved. Your expectations about Sunday morning, therefore, show, I think, who you really love. Spiritual people would rather build others up than themselves. They've been enabled to love others because they themselves have been so well loved by God. And so are more than willing to give themselves to that task. Do you? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we confess that we would rather be loved than love others. We confess that even as we gather with our brothers and sisters on Sunday morning, we, we think about that gathering so often in very selfish terms, w wanting to get something out of it for ourselves. Yet, Father, you loved us in such a way that you poured yourself out for us. Lord Christ, you, you gave yourself for us. Oh, Lord, may, may that kind of love fill us. May that kind of love characterize us. That, that as we gather, we love, not as we want to be loved, we love one another as we have already been loved. And through that love, may the world know that Jesus Christ really did get up from the dead. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.